Um, hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PNL Principles and Leadership in Business podcast series. I'm Kelly Viewers, today's guest host on the new PNL this week, and I'm very grateful you've taken the time to join us today for a very special roundtable on reimagining entrepreneurship. Just before we start, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or another platform, and you like what you hear, please take a moment to review us. It all helps our ratings and rankings. If you'd like to ensure you never miss another episode of the new PNL, go to principlesandleadership.com and subscribe. We'd love to have you as part of our community. We believe business needs a new PNL, one that is focused as much on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and align with your purpose, and your leadership has a clear vision, focus, strength, and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Bayo Adelaja, Sana Shafi, and Alice Moxley. A very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Our topic today is reimagining entrepreneurship. There's been a lot of talk about building back better with business leaders, organizations and think tanks contributing ideas and concepts to paint the picture of a better future. But today we want to focus on the doers, those who are taking action and willing to fail in pursuit of reimagining business. In particular, at times of crisis, entrepreneurs are often seen as the leaders who can emerge with new solutions and innovations. We're going to explore what it means to be an entrepreneur, who gets to be one, how we create the conditions for entrepreneurship, and if there might be new ways to do this that are more inclusive, sustainable, and long-term. So I was really keen to convene the three of you because you are all doers. Um, and interestingly, I looked up the original meaning of the term entrepreneur, and it literally means in, in French to get things done, which I thought was interesting. Um, but from my conversations with all of you, I think it's fair to say that to some extent, you're slightly reluctant entrepreneurs there's a sense that the term doesn't quite sit comfortably with you. Um, so I'd like to ask each of you in turn what the term entrepreneur means to you and to what extent you identify with it. Um, and Bayo, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for having me, Kelly. Um, okay, so entrepreneur, to me, it just sounds like salesman immediately. Uh, and it just kind of makes me think of all of the movies I watched growing up, all the TV shows that tell you what it's like when that's not what it's like at all. And uh, so I, and honestly, I, I feel like it's a little bit hard to spell. So I just kind of go with founder or I run a business or well, more specifically, I run a nonprofit. So uh, in terms of getting things done, yes. Um, I call myself chief doer because my, my organization is called Do It Now Now. So it makes sense too. And um, my kind of mantra is just trying to make the best next decision at all times. And uh, I think it does fit, but as a, as a label in itself, I don't quite affiliate myself with it. Great, thank you. And Alice? Um, yeah, I think um, I probably have quite similar feelings to Bayo. Um, there's a kind of ruthlessness that I associate with entrepreneurship. Um, and interestingly, I read the antonym of ruthlessness is Ruth, which is a biblical uh, thing, which comes from like the idea of being compassionate. Um, and I think as a social entrepreneur, it's definitely more of an emph emphasis on the uh, compassionate side. Um, it's this kind of weird thing of, I think of men in suits. Um, and I'm really happy that 
since I started Pivot. I haven't had to wear a suit once. I mostly wear dungarees now. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I suppose I, I identify as a, a founder, maybe a, a leader, but not really as an entrepreneur. Thank you. And Sana? I find that entrepreneur is a very interesting word and one that's changed, I suppose, over, over the years. So now when you hear, or when I hear the word entrepreneur, it brings to mind, you know, your very stereotypical kind of Mark Zuckerberg-esque, Elon Musk, the really kind of big, you know, brand names that are, that are out there. So, and with it, there comes a certain image that's associated with that, you know, the, the stories of, the exceptions of rags to riches and the whole concept of that now being an entrepreneur is seen as sexy it's you know all of a sudden you've got this everybody wants to be an entrepreneur these days and now you've got this new term of being is it called a wannapreneur I think or something along those lines so where, where everybody I to some extent calls themselves an entrepreneur so I suppose it's really difficult to know what it means in this modern world, to be honest. But to me, uh, the word entrepreneur has always meant someone who's innovative, so someone who's um, not afraid to go against the tide, to come up with something different, to come up with something novel, and realistically to, and more importantly, to actually get things done. Although I do think that now maybe that doesn't apply anymore because as I said, being an entrepreneur is now seen as something that everybody wants a piece of, you know, everyone that's in uni, everybody that's that's having a job. It's like if you go on LinkedIn and you type in CEO or like founder, every single person on there is now a founder of something. Um, so I don't, I don't really know how I feel about, about that term. Um, and, and I don't really call myself an entrepreneur, to be honest. I call myself more of a founder um, and maybe... Uh, occasionally a thought leader maybe a more of a visionary but I don't really associate myself with this whole Elon Musk brand of entrepreneurship of doing you know 60 hour or 100 hour weeks and you know starting a little business in my bedroom which all of a sudden becomes this behemoth of, of Facebook so yeah I mean I, again I would say I'd call myself more of a founder and very much of a social entrepreneur if I have to same as Alice. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Really interesting. Um, and Sana, I'd just like to pick up some of the things that you mentioned there, um, because we talk about, uh, and actually there was a, a survey done asking young people, I think under 24, to name um, someone that came up for them when they were asked about, to, to ask to name an entrepreneur. And, and many of the usual names came up, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, most of them men. Um, but actually, we know that most everyday entrepreneurs are shopkeepers, hairdressers, you know, in local communities running small businesses. Um, and so what, why do you think that there is this obsession uh, with, uh, you know, some of those sort of the myths of entrepreneurship that you, that you mentioned, the unicorns? And, and do you think it's important to change the narrative? Yeah, um, I think it's really important to change the narrative. I think we've kind of entered this almost dangerous territory, I'd say, where we're focusing so much on all these successful entrepreneurs out there and we define success by a very narrow margin which is going towards your stereotypical accelerators and then all of a sudden you know raising millions and millions and millions in like fundraising rounds and having you know hopefully going to getting to an IPO and that is the standard trajectory and the, rea the reality is that it's not 
it's not like that. You know, we know that the stats are quite dismal <laughs> in terms of how many businesses fail in the first, second and third year. Um, and those are kind of conversations that people no longer want to have. Um, and there is so much emphasis on being an entrepreneur. There are all of these massive like Instagram pages with tens of thousands of followers, which just post about how great the CEO lifestyle is. Um, and I think to an extent, we need a bit of a reality check. Um, the CEO lifestyle is not as it is presented to be. So, yeah, I think I, I would definitely agree with you, um, Kelly, that we definitely need to reimagine not just what it means to be entrepreneur, but also to bring some level of reality back into this CEO lifestyle and this entrepreneur myth that is now pervading it. And I think a lot of it comes from we're living in like very uncertain times and all of a sudden there's this whole idea of not being reliant on your first job and having the second source of income stream and having your own freedom and that those are some of the things that underpin the entrepreneur myth from what I you know from my conversations with people that I have found which is like a very very interesting insight and almost is a bit of um it's just it's a very sexy image that's presented you know so well what do you do for a living oh well I'm a founder you know it's just it's all of a sudden every time oh wow what do you do what you know what does that mean what does your day-to-day -day look like um so yes, I definitely think that we really need to reevaluate what we mean when we talk about entrepreneurship and undoing some of that CEO myth that now exists. And Bio, you obviously with your work, it'd be great to hear a bit more about Do It Now Now, but you work with lots of small business owners who, who, might, who we might describe you know, warmly as everyday entrepreneurs. And, and do you believe that we can learn just as much from, from those founders and those people as we can from from the big uh, Steve Jobs-esque entrepreneurs? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in looking around you. And as a new founder, individual founder, someone building a, a, a normal business or a small business, you can learn a heck of a lot more from the people that are building a similar business to you at a similar stage as you think you learn from um, the more YouTube friendly, like Gary Vaynerchuks, who have wonderful things to say that are motivational but when you go like really sink down into what he's teaching it's really likely that you won't be able to adopt those methodologies for yourself because he's building out of what he knows and what he has access to I mean as a uh, tapping into to the earlier conversation I mean when you aspire to be an entrepreneur and you see all these wonderful uh, wonderful role models in the same way that you saw uh, Beyonce and Serena Williams and LeBron James and like David Beckham and all of these people that made you think the way to get success and get to doing what I love is to be an entertainer or to be a sports person and if that was your option growing up that's what you aspired to and I think entrepreneurialism has kind of felt fallen into that celebrity status of I do what I love I make I do I make my own decisions I live on my own terms and I happen to make a lot of money while doing it and a lot of uh, people have tapped into that but when you kind of measure that with the reality of there were exactly eight black women that received venture capital funding in the past 10 years in the UK you recognize that it's like that movie he's just not that into you sometimes you're not the exception sometimes you are the rule and you have to figure out what that looks like in your own life and I think it's a it's really important to have a good level of hope and, and enthusiasm for what you're doing, but also measure that with a really good dose of reality 
as to what it is that is actually available to you. Because otherwise, trying to be an entrepreneur, looking at the at the kind of celebrity entrepreneurs that are out there, uh, leaves you unfortunately disappointed a lot of the time. And uh, I know the thing is, if the saying we all I'm sure have heard a hundred times is, if you do, if you don't love it, if you couldn't do, it, if no one was paying you, you shouldn't be doing it in the first place because entrepreneurialism is very very hard, and you need to be able to mo- motivate yourself even in the hard times. If your basis for it is a shallow, and I'm not accusing anyone of being shallow, but if in in the sense of if the depth of it comes entirely from representation or popularity of a of a kind of mo- mode of living then you're not going to be able to deal with things like so many fantastic entrepreneurs have been dealing with when it comes to things like COVID, where you see for us, I mean, within six weeks, all of our, all of our contracts were gone, like immediately just wonderfully disappeared. And uh, we had to kind of take a really good hard look at what we were doing and how we were doing it to be able to claw our, our way back. And I think that is entrepreneurialism. That's what being a business person is. It's it's about being able to innovate and build and keep doing it every single day, despite how difficult it is, because you believe in what you're trying to create in the world. And moving on from from the sort of the the reality and the myths, um, Alice, can you talk to us a little bit more about Pivot? Because one of the things I know that you talk about with the vision of Pivot is being able to transform hostels and temporary accommodation into spaces of enterprise, which I love as a phrase. So can you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that, about some of your makers and, and, and that story? Um, yeah, so um, I suppose it, it kind of all began when I was working um, in the hostel um, as a progression and support worker. And my job was to try and get people into work. And there was a lot of willingness for people who wanted to work but a lot of barriers that were stopping them. Um, And I kind of had this belief that everyone really had the right to work. And more than that, they had the right to access meaningful work. Um, And I think that our system basically disadvantages people who live in adverse ways um, to their access to work. Um, So some of those barriers in this particular hostel, um, you have breakfast at eight and you have dinner at five. So you have restrictive times that you can work um you're then mostly everyone will be living on universal credit so very small amount of cash in order to be able to get um uh, a bus to work for instance so um i suppose I, I posed the question was there a way to bring work or enterprise directly into hostels thereby removing a lot of those barriers and because of my background um, in architecture and making jewelry, I kind of thought, well, maybe that uh, enterprise, we could we could pilot it with jewelry. So, so I suppose I always say this pivot is maybe not jewelry, but we're, we're doing jewelry at the moment. And actually, if you can take um, work into hostels, what, what can that look like? Um, so at the moment, it's a product that someone can make in their bedroom, but in the longer term, it could be workshops in hostels and you, by creating places of making and maybe also selling. Um, it kind of changes the dynamic um, of those spaces. They become a lot more positive, um, purposeful. Um, and yeah, I suppose um, to talk, should I talk a bit about the makers or? Um, I'd love to hear, yeah, we'd love to hear about them. 
at the moment um, we work with um, 10 people in a hostel in North London, uh, a mixture of men and women, um, all under the age of 35. Um, they kind of, all their backgrounds are very varied. Um, it's quite amazing actually, I think for me, I, I never realized, I suppose how diverse um, reasons are for ending up in those situations. Um, but what's really great is that we work really well as a community and there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support which has arisen from doing what we're doing. So just as a, an ecosystem, people share tools and they share fixings for the jewellery and um, and yes, it's, it's, it's been quite amazing and um, we've been employing someone who was a maker um, uh, in our office now two days a week. So he's become a team leader. So there's this... Uh, maybe um, it, it's showing that that's how the business could go, that we can recruit from the people that we're already working with um, to then, as we grow and, and expand. Great, thanks Alice. So we've talked a little bit about defining or redefining the term entrepreneurship and, and perhaps your discomfort with it a little bit. Um, so now I'd like to talk a bit more about sort of who, who gets to be an entrepreneur and, and how that happens. And, and before we did that, we've, we've already discussed maybe some of the entrepreneurs that typically get spoken about and, and held up as, as heroes. Um, but I'd like to ask each of you to tell us about an entrepreneur that you really admire and, and why. And maybe we'll start with you, Sana. I think you're on mute, Sana. You know, this is the great thing about being on Zoom all the time. You're just consistently spending time being like, you're on mute. You're like, okay, one sec, let me get myself off mute again. <laughs> um, I said, I was going to say, that's a really difficult question you've asked me, um, Kelly. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that I admire. Um, and a lot of them are actually people that I know, which rather than the very stereotypical kind of big brand ones. Um, so it's really hard for me to pick one that I can tell you about the individuals that I do know, and they're very much of your, you know, they're, they're dreamers um, in the sense that they want to, they want to see change happen. Um, and they've got, there's a lot that they want to achieve and, and their, and their cause, their reason for doing this. Um, a lot of it's driven by a cause, a lot of it's driven by a desire to see a better society or to alleviate some form of, um, or to correct an issue that, that, that exists. Um, and one of the, and, and this person, one of the people that I know that I admire quite a lot actually is, is a mentor of mine. So he runs um, the startup called IFG, which is called the Summit Finance Guru. Um, and I've, I happened to run into him maybe a year and a bit ago. Um, and they started as a blog post. So they started as a blog site where they would just post a lot of advice around you know, demystifying the world of finance for the average person, providing really, really good investment advice and how to become financially stable with, with the resources that you have. So rather than having to go to Barclays Bank with a net worth of, you know, 200K and then getting a private banker to do all of these things for you, they focus a lot on financial empowerment, which I think is such a great cause um, because that's something that affects everyone and the world of finance a lot like the world of law it's very it's always quite mystical it's quite difficult to penetrate there's so many terms and there is so much jargon that you just don't understand and I just love the way that they've been able to simplify this and bring it to a mass audience um and 
and when I look at when I look at this, when I look at it as a business and I look at the founding team behind it, a couple of things stand out. And a lot of it comes from the type of people that they are. So they're very they're visionaries, but they're very much focused on solving a need. And this one thing that they had been doing for the past seven years is this consistent motivation to turn up um, and do this small little hustle that they had going on for years and years and years um, and really focus on it before it it became something a lot bigger and now they have you know lots and lots and lots of people that read their blog posts and loads and loads of hundreds of thousands of subscribers but it wasn't always that way um, and I just really admire the grit that went into it which is one of the key findings of what it means to be and to use the term entrepreneur or to be a founder is that grit um, and every time I kind of see them I'm like wow you guys are just incredible so that that would be that would be mine thank you same question to you Baya um well for me I also really value tenacity and similarly the people that I admire are always people that I know I could pick up a phone and I could call and have a conversation with uh, because I, I I do honestly think it's a waste of energy to put your hopes in someone that you that doesn't have the same life experience as you because otherwise the barriers that you face are entirely different so how do you know that you can comparably solve each other's problems or whatever um but in terms of picking uh picking one entrepreneur I well it shifts and changes all the time it really just depends on who I'm thinking of in the moment but uh I, there's a fantastic uh friend of mine called uh Dyer who runs a uh who's building a, a dating app for uh, Black people globally. And just in conversations with her, it is, it's just incredible to kind of have someone have all of this really deep insight into a specific thing and be incredibly passionate about it and know so much about the business landscape and know so much about how everything works. And recognize the barriers that she's facing as a black woman in this space and also like constantly strategizing her way around them and it's just like it makes me feel like okay I'm not the only one that thinks like this for one but also she's just so much better than me so I'm just like I really I really want to just learn from you and like know how you're doing everything that you're doing so I really appreciate having um having her in my life and a number of other people that I'm sure uh will probably not like the fact that I didn't think of them first but that's fine <laughs> and Alice um I was thinking about this earlier this morning um and the first person that I thought of was um, Meg Doherty who um did the same program as me year here a few years before who I actually did my placement with and the reason why I was thinking about Meg was because on Monday when all this the reality of lockdown number two came into force uh, with lots of things being cancelled. I rang up Meg and said, I'm feeling really terrible. Um, how are you doing? And she was so positive and so generous in the time that she took to speak to me. I was very kind of, I, I was very humbled and I remembered what it was like working for her because she's one of those people that despite being super busy and spinning 15 plates at once she um always manages to find time for other people and i think it's been a really good lesson for me because i think that there's other people who are starting their journeys now who are a little bit 
further behind than I am. And so I'm also trying to be generous. And I think especially women for women is really important. Um, and, you know, opening doors for each other. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we all have, you know, we're as a community, um, I think it's just really important. Thank you. And it's really interesting. Sorry, I was going to say, I also say that she's um, the founder of Fat Macy's, um, which is a catering social enterprise. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you. It's really interesting that you all chose people that you know, which I think further kind of reinforces this interesting, um, you know, the everyday entrepreneur and, and looking around you to, to see to see others and find inspiration in your communities. Um, Bio, you mentioned earlier um, the you know, quite shocking figure of the number of black women that have received investment in the past, I think you said 10, 10 years. And we know that people of color and particularly black people are still underrepresented among the entrepreneur community and receive significantly less funding and investment. Um, and what are some of the great things that you've seen that are helping to try and change this, change this that, you're, that you're also doing, but kind of what gives you hope I mean, over the past, I think, four years before diversity and inclusion became a thing that people were hiring for or even seeking to build into their um, into the way that they do things, there were a number of organizations and communities that were starting up to, uh, and we were one of them, are one of them, I suppose, continue to be, uh, that was starting up to address a problem that we were specifically finding. So I started my... I ran my first tech company while I was at university. I didn't know it was called a tech company. I was just building something and thought, hey, what, wouldn't this be fun? Because I was studying English literature and I only had four hours of lectures a week. So it felt like a waste of time not to do anything else. Um, so I was just doing that. And once I kind of left that behind and moved into work and all of these things, I started recognizing there were so many people in the world of work and otherwise that felt so out of place, particularly black people that felt so out of place and unable to succeed in the way that they wanted to within their corporate career, and then recognize that the impetus for that corporate career was, uh, this is what I should be doing rather than this is what I want to be doing. And in that, you found that there were organizations that kind of sprung up around supporting black people and people of color in general to find their passion and do it effectively. And that because I think the tech world was a little bit stronger on encouraging these conversations, drove itself into the tech space a lot quicker. And now there are a lot of organizations that specifically focus on diversity and inclusion within the tech space. And uh, you find initiatives uh, supporting people to get jobs in tech, supporting people to raise finance, supporting people to become a little bit uh, stronger in their understanding of startup, the startup world. Um, there's, uh, there are programs springing up every day to help people of color become venture capitalists, to help open up that scope of who gets to decide who gets money. And uh, I mean, we're, like I said, we're one of the organizations that do many of these different things, but the it is encouraging, but at the same time, in the midst of COVID, it was very clear that, and this was in COVID pre-Black Lives Matter. So at that point, it was very clear that diversity and inclusion was still seen as a marketing opportunity and an investor relations 
um, or an internal communications experiment rather than an actual hope for the future. And that was disappointing, um, but not something I was particularly surprised by. Uh, so, I mean, it's encouraging that many things are happening, but it's also it's still very much on uh, un unsteady footing in terms of where things are going to go. And which is why I, I strive for realistic communication about what this world is actually like and how slow it is to really change. Because in a world that is determined entirely by pro um, or profit and loss, uh, it is very difficult to get anyone to pay any attention to anything that doesn't immediately in the moment add to someone's bottom line. Um, so I, for me, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism being a founder running your own thing has it comes from a willingness to be your own boss and a kind of a drive to to be your own decision maker but particularly within the within the tech space you kind of have to think to yourself whether or not you are going to be the the next wave that comes through and if you are fantastic but the likelihood is that you're not it's just numbers Thank you. And talking of, of next waves, Sana, you co-founded Strive, uh, which exists to address the imbalance of diversity in city law. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about Strive, but also your particular experience of founding something whilst training to be a lawyer uh, and, and how you navigated that sort of entrepreneurship story. <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I set up Strive during my final year exams so I was studying my I was in I was in my last year of university doing my law degree and I had exams coming up and I just remember like diversity was something that was always at the forefront of my agenda ever since I got my training contract offer from the firm that I'm now with um, and my own experiences of going through that process of trying to obtain a grad scheme in an industry that was very unfamiliar to me um, because I don't really have any lawyers in the family. I don't really know any lawyers. I don't really have friends that know any lawyers. And I went to a school where, you know, these kind of careers were, you know, you heard the term lawyer, but generally majority of that used to be high street, small family law firm offices rather than big corporate city law. And the world of corporate law was, and the world of corporate generally was such a, it was just such a whole different world to the world that I grew up in. So when I was navigating it, it really felt like I was coming at it from an entirely different place, which, which I was. You know, I went from being this girl from northwest side of London that didn't have any exposure to anything to do with the city or anyone in the city to all of a sudden trying to navigate an entire internship in this new industry, having not known anything about it in advance, having had no exposure to it in advance. And one of the things that I realized when I was doing that was the fact that I <laughs> I always felt like I was the only one in the room. Um, I was very, very different to the rest of the cohort in terms of not just the way that I look and, you know, which, <laughs> which in itself is like the biggest thing, but also just in terms of my personal background in the sense that I don't really come from um, a family of academics, lawyers or bankers, anything along those lines that I attended a very local state school around the corner, like five minutes from my house. So um, it was just both in terms of looks, social diversity and class, I was I was in a completely different category um, to the rest of my peers. So that was the thing that really kind of made me think that something needs to be done 
about this. And yes, there were organizations that were working on this, but I always felt that, you know, we've been doing this for so many years. We've been talking about diversity for so many years. And if in 2017, which was the year when I was going through it, we haven't made that much progress, then something needs to be done. And also these organizations were not targeting students like me which was students that came from maybe a lower socioeconomic background that um, were also belonging to a BAME um, category in terms of like their, their ethnicity and race and so forth. And in addition to that, various other socioeconomic factors that affected them. So we wanted to focus on, and the branding really behind Strive is true diversity rather than visible racial diversity, um, which basically means you can pick up anyone that looks different but comes from a very very similar background and therefore has a similar way of thinking as everybody else in the room so we really wanted to bring diversity back to what it truly meant to be diverse so the, this was the whole concept um, of, of strive so I, I set that up um, while my exams were happening and then um, and then later on it became while I was training to be a lawyer which well, I didn't really have much time to do this but um when we set it up the whole thing just sprang up overnight essentially so we launched it myself and my co-founder we launched it in about two days um and then you know a year from from our launch day we went on to win um, a national diversity award um against a whole a whole load of other very well established law firms just a year on from our establishment so it's been a very very exciting journey but um it's been a really difficult journey in the sense that the standard route of entrepreneurship tends to be, you know, you go to uni, normally you'll start a business idea, join an accelerator, work on it full time. But I didn't, I, I wasn't really looking to become an entrepreneur. I didn't set out to join an accelerator and work on it full time. I just saw a problem that had to be solved. And that's where the whole thing came out from. So going through that then opened my eyes to a whole lot of other problems within the entrepreneur space itself which is what happens if you're you're a founder like me who doesn't have financial backing who doesn't have a family of you know a history of entrepreneurship behind them and no connections in this new world so it was a little bit of an interesting journey where I was looking to address an imbalance in corporate law and then find myself in a situation where I then started to identify imbalance within the space that I was currently in. Um, so yeah, but it's been a very, very exciting journey. Um, and you know, I'm learning things every single day, but it has been very unconventional to say the least. Thank you for sharing that. And, and we've talked a little bit about while we're on the topic of sort of who, the perception of who gets to be an entrepreneur and, and, the, and the reality. Um, I also think it was interesting, um, Alice, I read in Entrepreneur magazine that there's there's obviously a media fascination with the stories of successful, youthful entrepreneurs that we touched on at the start, but actually um, millennials are, are apparently less likely to want to start a business than their parents' generation were. And I just wondered what you thought some of the barriers to that might be. Um, I thought this was a really interesting um, question Kelly because I was actually speaking to a load of my friends who are turning 30 this year um, about whether or not they wanted to start businesses and everyone was like absolutely not and actually the conversation I was sat around the table and everyone seemed to be um, about to buy a house or had bought a house and were paying mortgages and I'm the only one who's not and I will continue to 
to live this uh, penniless life until maybe Pivot becomes uh, more successful, but we're only nine months old, so I won't, I won't complain too much. Um, but I think um, if I think about my parents who both started their own businesses, um, they were able to move to London in the 1970s and buy houses in post-war post, uh, post slum uh, London, like parts of it where they could live cheaply. And then, you know, that made a huge difference. And I think today, people of my generation are often driven by the need to earn money um, and kind of irregardless of whether the work that they do um, brings them joy or happiness because actually they're living for the weekends and for other parts. Um, I think it's a thing that I feel most honoured about in the work that I now do is that I really genuinely enjoy every day, well, most days that I work. Um, but I think that to be an entrepreneur, you need to take risks. And I think um, risk taking is so tied to financial freedom. Um, and so that comes from a place of, of being privileged. Um, and I think um, I think that's probably like the major the major major barrier your um people are, are most likely to live more comfortably if they're not um going out alone um and and maybe i'm grossly generalizing um but i'd say you know the thing the thing that was really amazing about year here was that um it created a situation of safety, not financial safety, but uh, uh, a kind of metaphorical womb in which to, um, you know, uh, feel that I could go and take those risks. Thank you. And we've talked, uh, we've talked a bit about redefining and, and, the, and the sort of who, but I want to move on a bit to the, to the do, as we're a group of doers. Um, and, and reimagining ways in which we might sort of do entrepreneurship or create the conditions for it. Um, and Bayo, I know that through the work you do, and also I think previously to founding Do It Now Now, you uh, participated on and ran um, sort of incubators or accelerators for entrepreneurs. And, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on what sort of the key ingredients might be from your experience of doing that to kind of creating the conditions for um, you know, successful um, impact entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship more generally. I think you're on mute. If you don't, if you don't mind, I'll link it to the uh, to the answer that Alice just gave, because I think for well, I work exclusively with uh, with Black entrepreneurs and. Uh, on occasion when we're designing something for someone else with people of color. So we're always working with uh, communities that are deemed marginalized within the entrepreneurial ecosystem in general. Uh, so my experience and, uh, and insight will always come from that space. What I found, and I first noticed it um, between 2017 and 18, I moved to Nigeria for, for um, eight months because I wanted to I'm, I'm generally passionate about uh, underserved entrepreneurs. And I was like, Nigeria, Africa, this is where we want to be to build this thing. And we still do a lot of work with um, African entrepreneurs. I just figured out that it was actually easier to do it from here than there because of a number of different uh, infrastructural barriers. But what, on 
uh, that was my first time living in Nigeria as an adult and actually like watching the news to watch it. And it was the first time I'd seen a daily segment on building a side hustle on the national news, like six o'clock news, everyone's watching TV to figure out what's happening in the country. And there is a daily segment on how to build a side hustle because with so much financial insecurity, you are just, that is a key option. That is the thing that you need to be doing to ensure that you are stable. So in, on the flip side, security is a, entrepreneurship is an opportunity for security as opposed to a risk of your security. And that, that was the first time I really understood that from the Nigerian perspective. But when I moved back to the UK, I recognized it in our beneficiaries as well, because when you look at um, people that are trying to move up in their corporate sphere, uh, not anecdotally, well-researched, Black people tend to get fired within the first three years of their like consultancy or whatever, like large company, uh, because they are not being given enough opportunities to progress in their in their organization, but then they're told that they're just not working hard enough. Uh, and when you listen to enough of those stories, you know, it can't be the same. It can't be true that everyone is just apparently quite lazy. Um, and you kind of find that people then go off, start a consultancy of their own that is entrepreneurial, that gets all this stuff done, and then they go back as a senior manager to those corporations or similar corporations that said, you just didn't have the it factor for us. Um, whereas there's just a lot of bias happening within the organization as to who gets the good work and who gets the great projects and the advanceable type things. Um, so when you look at what on black entrepreneurs specifically are looking for when you look at um, incubators, accelerators, and so on, they're looking for a level of respect as to the, the experience that they're bringing in because the types of people that um, seek to start a job, um, sorry, no, start an entrepreneurial career or become a founder of something, for Black people are typically extremely well-educated people who've had to enter into entrepreneurship. I mean, the people that are applying for incubators and accelerators are seeking to engage in this ecosystem because otherwise you're just not really engaged with about 70% of the of the population that is starting a business is not engaged in this incubator accelerator kind of world at all. But the black people that do seek to engage are extremely well educated, have fantastic uh, professional careers that they have had to leave or are seeking to leave because they don't see a forward progression happening. And are looking for this opportunity to start something that will be able to give them enough of a name for themselves that they can then go back and change that industry that has kind of scorned them in some way or another. So it is, it's really about recognizing that they expect different things. I mean, and the level of passion that they have for what they're doing is going to be different because they recognize that this is their option. It's not a risk, it's an opportunity. So it's about like, this is the way that I'm going to finally succeed and, and almost stick it to the people that um, that told me that I couldn't. So for, for us, when it's about leveling the, the playing field for those kinds of, for incubators and accelerators that we consult with, it's about helping them recognize that what they think a black entrepreneur is, isn't necessarily what a black entrepreneur actually is and opening the door for those two different types of entrepreneurs, the people that don't really know what they're doing, can, um, maybe don't have the motivation that you think they would have or whatever. And the people that are just like, actually, I mean, I've, I've been on the same program as people that went to like Harvard and Yale and we're like, and we're on the same boat. Okay. I mean, like, it's, it's about recognizing that 
there is no one size fits all and we often exceed expectations or flout expectations of what we should be like and should be uh, engaging with and should be passionate about. So empowering people as individuals to kind of level out within that space that you're creating is really important and speaking to people as much as possible before you and en they enter into your program to see what they need is extremely important as well. Thank you. And, and Sana, I think some of that might have been interesting for you because I know that you're in the sort of early stages of, of reimagining or thinking about sort of the traditional accelerator models, um, you know, taking your learnings from Strive and, and elsewhere. And I just wondered if you had any reflections on, on that and, and what Bio's just shared. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, everything that Bio's just said, I absolutely agree with um, that there isn't actually one size that fits all. And the way that we currently do entrepreneurship in terms of the current accelerator model, that maybe it does need a bit of a revamp because we're essentially applying a blanket approach to all these founders that are coming through, not recognizing that every single founder has and every single startup, in fact, has different needs and they have different strengths and they're operating in very, very different industries. And it's a problem when the people that are running these accelerators they exist in certain industries only, which of course happens and therefore they don't really have enough knowledge or insight of other industries that these founders might be bringing in and therefore cannot really identify the opportunities that exist in that niche. And I think I remember reading, and, and perhaps Bio is definitely more aware of this, but I remember reading an article about um, a founder that wanted to launch a hair care brand um, and you know accessories for black females and when she approached the VCs for fundraising they didn't really recognize that as an opportunity they didn't really see that as a problem and they didn't really understand what it was that her business was trying to achieve and issues like that are prevailing across industry because when we look at the top level of who are the VCs and we look at who are the investors um, they all fit a certain you know they will fit a certain class of people and in order to, and that's where the money is coming from, right? So we need to change a lot of things in the space. Primarily, we need to change the people that hold the money. So the investor board itself, the investor base, the people that are running the accelerators, do they have the understanding of these other niche industries? And the truth is that unless you're from a particular background, you're not going to understand these industries. A Muslim founder can understand the challenges faced by the Muslim community. A Black founder can understand the challenges faced by the Black community because they've lived it and they've seen it and they've experienced it. Um, and if we want to see more diversity in this venture space, that's what needs to happen. We need to change diversity at the top end of the spectrum as well as at the bottom end of the spectrum so that the tannin that flows through is more diverse and then on the flip side is met with a corresponding diverse board and base of investors and advisors and mentors. And then in terms of the way that we, which then leads me to the second part, which is the way that we're actually applying the one size fits all approach, that maybe it's time for us to reconsider how we do things. And Strive is all, is all about doing things differently. And one of the things that I learned from Strive is this whole concept of having these pre, you know, the, these assumptions that accelerators typically make when it comes to investments. So for instance, when we're looking at founder profiles, where do we place an emphasis on where this founder studied? So, you know, a founder that has an MBA is much more likely to get investment than a founder that just simply has a degree, simply because they've got an MBA. A founder that has an MBA from Cambridge, Harvard, 
or you know Oxford that apparently it somehow makes it easier that develop that brings them confidence from investors that this is a good founder when in reality being a founder or indeed being um, good at anything is a lot less to do with your degree and where you studied and a lot more to do with the kind of person that you are and this is very very reflective of what we do with Strive where we're taking students that don't have the best grades and they haven't gone to Oxford Cambridge or Harvard or universities that are very, very well known and established within law and yet are performing and, and are attaining grad schemes with leading law firms globally. And that really opened my, my eyes to the fact that actually, you know, I, and I always believed in it that grades have very little to do with your success, but running Strive really kind of made me believe that um, in the sense that it really brought out the fact that whatever I believed in was true and it was in fact validated and then applying that to the founder space I think that is more true than ever before that you can't judge a founder by where they went but about how they do things and their product itself and the way that they think and really the, the biggest quality of all is grit you know the ability to innovate and pivot quite quickly but the underlying feature of it all is grit and execution and those are the two things that make an excellent founder and those two things cannot necessarily be found by or identified just by saying that this founder went to Harvard. Um, and then there's this other, um, and maybe and forgive me if I'm going on for too long, but then there is another point about this, which is all about what happens when you take founders out of this, this space, right? What happens when you've got these founders that have gone from accelerator to accelerator and they've been supported at every single stage of the process with a very intensive you know workings that have been happening um, on their product on their service and their ability to scale where essentially a lot of that work has been has been a very very intensive input from the accelerators themselves so what happens when when they kind of exit that and then they need to do things themselves um and I think, Kelly, we were talking about this, how, in fact, the way that that approach may not be sustainable for the long term, but it's just the fact that we've been doing it for so long that that's become the industry default. And I think it's about time that we considered other ways of doing it and, you know, finding something that is sustainable, workable, and most importantly, accessible to an underrepresented group of founders. Absolutely. Thank you for those reflections. And I think and I think it's fair to say that we know that sort of not we've talked sort of generally about incubators and accelerators and, and we know that, you know, they're not not all created equal. And I'd be really keen to hear from you, Alice. I know that you've um, you know participated on programs and had mentoring. And um, I, I was interested to read there's an author called David Sachs who's written a book called The Soul of an Entrepreneur. Uh, and he talks a little bit about how there's been a, a bit of a paint by numbers approach to entrepreneurship, that there's somehow this magic formula for growth, scale, and impact. And we've already raised in this discussion that growth scale might not be the most important things. So, so Alice, I just wondered what you'd reflect on as, on your experience of, of um, the balance between, you know, that is there a sort of over-programmed nature to, to how these things might be achieved and what your experience has been having you know, come through a, a program that supports that and now being uh, out there on your own. And just be really interested to hear your reflections. Um, I suppose, like, perversely, um, the nature of entrepreneurship is about innovation. So um, you're, I, I don't, I don't believe, I suppose frameworks are set up to allow you to innovate within them, which is quite strange. So how can a framework be static 
in that scenario. Um, I think um, the learning that I got from year here, year here is the only um, program that I've done, the, the year long program and then the, um, the incubator afterwards which was cut short because of COVID. Um, but we, I, I suppose um, that whole program was about learning how to be innovative and be agile. Um, so I don't, I don't think there is a kind of formula to success or, or growth. And I think particularly for me, um, lots of people have been asking me recently, like, what is your long-term plan? And what are you you know, what's your year long roadmap looking like? And I just have to say, well, I'm, I'm living day to day at the moment because of COVID. So everything actually has to be really reactionary. And so I think that there's a skill within that where you can be super agile. You can be, um, you can be agile to, to the extent that you, you don't get emotional, too emotional when things um, disappear, which you were expecting to happen. Um, but that's kind of the greatest learning that I have taken from, from the process of being on that, on that incubator. And, and I think um, it's made me think really strongly about joining another one, uh, if I do, and there's been offers and conversations um, recently. And I think often now that I'm not sure if I want to do it just because of the amount of time that they take up and actually um, a day a week, two days a week of having lectures and learning about things is great. But actually, uh, you know, I've got 50 parcels I need to send or <laughs> I need to upload content onto the website or write a blog or ring a maker because they've gone AWOL for two weeks. And, you know, there's practical day-to-day -day things that actually, for me, I, I'm kind of like, I really like the independence that I'm doing it alone at the moment. Thank you. And as we look ahead, then we're reflecting on how things are happening now and, and different ways we might reimagine that. So, um, Bio, there's obviously we've, we've talked a little bit about the impact that, that COVID has had. And, and also you mentioned um, Black Lives Matter. And, and we also know that the climate crisis is is impending and around us. Uh, and so are you hopeful um, that some of those crises we've experienced will actually accelerate and, and help to forge new ventures that are, are led by people that represent more diverse communities and backgrounds and actually you know that, that are almost whether it's through an appetite for risk and making an impact or actually through necessity of, of, of having to find other ways in which to support their communities and and, and support themselves financially um, are, are you hopeful about uh, the fact that you know into 2021 and beyond uh, that we'll have some more and new uh, impactful ventures being being run by um, our reimagined entrepreneurs. Um, absolutely, I, I was uh, I was actually speaking to some animal rights activists a couple of weeks ago about um, how we could uh, potentially get more Black people to know about um, animal rights issues so that they could develop innovations that would solve the problem from a different perspective uh, because if you have more different perspective having people looking at the same problem you'll have more interesting solutions and uh, probably a wider scope so I the fact the kind of difference being that beyond Peter in that context there isn't really 
any other long-term uh, populist, like a uh, pop culture reference for that movement. Whereas with climate change, with Black Lives Matter, the number of other things that are happening, free school meals, um, a couple of years ago, period poverty, there are a lot of things that have kind of become natural language within the within our culture. And that engages more people that wouldn't typically think about or know about an issue to become passionate about that issue. And the people that are more inclined to enter into um, entrepreneurial um, activities, the people that have that kind of mindset. And I do believe it is a, it, not everybody is meant to be an entrepreneur. There are people that will test something out and then go back to a senior level position at their job. And that is entirely valid and well done to you if you can make that work for you because a steady salary is always a good thing. But I think, do you think uh, that with all of this, all of the things that are happening and people becoming more and more aware, particularly in these lockdowns of like having all of this information and nowhere to turn, uh, there is a there is a lot more scope for people that haven't typically been engaged directly into these conversations. Because I mean, if you think about the third sector, um, there is a very specific demographic of people that is asked to support causes or marketed to to support causes. And they're usually um, female, mid 30s or early, um, kind of around the 30 mark, uh, white and living in greater London or um, kind of a suburbia kind of world, whether there is, there is an assumption about your capacity to take on more. And if when things kind of hit that popular medium of like it's everywhere people that typically wouldn't have been marketed directly to to take part in a conversation about uh, a specific subject are then ent uh, enticed to because they kind of mirror something about uh, climate change to something that's happening in their own life and see themselves as an opportunity to either educate their friends and family or their local community or become more active in the wider scope of things so I'm definitely ex expecting a lot more people to become entrepreneurs and I'm seeing it already um, with our numbers certainly jumping up um, in terms of people seeking support from us um, but I'm also really uh, encouraged by the willingness for movements to work together to become more actively diverse like I said speaking to animal rights activists speaking to workers rights activists speaking to a number of different um, activism li live, um, lived groups and um, also trying to figure out how we as a black focused organization that focuses entirely on engaging black people to innovate in new spaces can engage with those uh, movements to be able to ensure that black people are supported in engaging in those problems and bringing their own solutions to it. Um, I will say that in those moments there is a need to do things differently because like I say the um, a highly, uh, highly educated, super autonomous uh, black person that is looking to use entrepreneurialism as a stepping stone to a future career is not going to want to be in a lecture um, room for two days a week, um, being kind of held by the hand every single moment of it, and they're going to want something different. And I think there is something to be said for venture studios. I know there's a few more popping up here and there. Crisis has one now. Um, as well as a charity. And we're developing our own venture studio and looking at what we could do with the learnings that we've gotten to be able to support 
people in a much more agile kind of way, while also empowering them to start uh, enterprises that have the a high likelihood of getting funded. So basically reverse engineering from the kind of VC side of things down to the angel side of things, then looking at what idea and what kind of founder are we looking for to engage in this problem solving. So, I mean, we always look at the ecosystem approach and I apologize. Uh, for being rather negative or seeming rather negative about people's chances of VC and chances of succeeding within the tech space. I think it's because we so often, as you're told as a founder by the Gary Vaynerchuks, by the everybody else, to do what you're passionate about, and it makes sense too. But if what you're passionate about lives on the edge of what VCs are willing to fund or is outside of the scope of what VCs are willing to fund, uh, then you're not going to build something that will get funded. And that's what people of color, particularly black people, particularly black women tend to be building. We tend to be building things that solve problems for other black women. So as Sana said earlier, if the, um, the people on the other side of the table don't understand that, then you're, as a founder, your trajectory is cut short quite abruptly. So understanding what we're trying to do is basically say, okay, where are the VCs? Um, where is their thesis? Not them as individuals, but what are they investing in as a rule based on what they've raised money for? And how can we tap into that to ensure that more Black people are able to build things that solve a problem they're passionate about in a methodology that VCs are willing to invest in? And I mean, we're in the early stages of that. I've just been having the most incredible conversations recently about putting that together to launch next year. Um, and hopefully other people will with uh, the money and resources will beat me to the punch and we can learn from them. Um, but I'm looking forward to, to testing that out over the next couple of years and seeing who we can help get funding. Amazing. And no apologies for reality checks. We're, it's a constructivist and pragmatic conversation that's been brilliant. And actually looking at the time, um, there's so much more that we could talk about. But just before we go, um, as you may be aware, we end each podcast with a the new PL to the point section where we ask guests to provide one or two key takeaways that listeners can think about and apply to their businesses when it comes to principles and leadership in business, especially in times of crisis like now. So I'm going to ask each of you, what would those key takeaways be from your perspective? Um, and I'll start with Sana. I think um, the most important thing is to, and I know people have really, it sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but to think about your why, which is not just why are you doing it, but why did you start in the first place? What was the main reason behind why you set out on this? unnecessary, as, as some people might call it, extremely difficult, horrendously complicated, lonely journey. Um, why did you begin that process? And I think that's really important to keep your eyes on the vision that you had when you first started out. And of course, it's important for that vision to change. But the underlying point of that vision, I think, remains constant. The problem that you wanted to resolve, that remains constant. And I think it's really, really important to not lose focus of that as you go through especially when things aren't working out because we've talked about the challenges of being an entrepreneur but actually when you first start out you might not make any money for the first two three four five six seven years maybe even longer than that i mean i know entrepreneurs that are still going at it and you know they still haven't made money and it's been six seven years down the line and that is a very real reality thing that's happening in terms of the whole like profit aspect so when that happens to think about 
that whole why thing and I think it sounds very like Simon Sinek-esque to be talking about this but it really resonates with me so that's the first one and my second one is actually um, everyone talks about focusing on the founder um, and when you go to VCs one of the first things that they'll look for is the founder you know like is, is the founder charismatic is the founder ability to get people on side is the founder this that and the other and a whole list of criteria that the founder is assessed against but I think more importantly you need to look at your team so is your team because you're not you can be a great founder but if you do not have a great team you're not going to get very far so consistently if you have a good team to value that team and to make sure that your team is behind you and they back your mission and they back what it is that you're trying to do and not only do they back it but they are executing as as you're going along so th those are my two things focus on your why and focus on your team thanks Anna um Alice your reflections and takeaways now please um, I can think of so many things. <laughs> um, I was going to say um, ride the wave because Pivot incorporated 49 days before the UK went international lockdown um, and we're still alive and uh, we're actually growing and I think um, it's, it's, there are so many moments this year where um, I could have given up and I didn't and I am gritting my teeth and hoping to get through and there is a promise of a world beyond this pandemic where um, hopefully we will have a bit of an easier life everyone everyone who's involved with pivot that's the makers that's the people who work in the office that's me like everyone is suffering in in different ways as is the world um i'd also um i i'm going to be controversial and say don't over plan um because I've found that it's actually been kind of throwing away the the five-year plan, throwing away the year-long plan has been um, good for my mental state in that, like, actually, we're going to live day to day. We're going to be reactive um, and not, you know, if for me, I think uh, if we were to over plan, um, it could just result in lots of disappointments. So, um, to to work on a kind of week by week, day by day basis, it means that um, we can be as agile as possible. Um, and again, like very lucky because we're so young, um, it means that that we are a, a beast which can um, can be agile. So um, maybe ask me the same question in five years time. <laughs> Well, I'm sure Paul would be delighted to have you back. Um, and finally, Bio. Uh, okay, so I think I, I just have one for you because I said my other one uh, earlier on, which I think uh, Alice just said as well. Focus on making the best next decision. That is pretty much my daily life. Um, but the one that has, is, has been my personal mantra um, and has really just stuck with me over the years is um, basically it's so much more important who you are than how successful you are or even what you do and kind of not losing sight of the fact that you're going to have to live with every single decision and the consequences of those decisions for the rest of your life like if there is a diary of every decision that you made uh, that is going to stick with you and people are going to know this about you and you're going to know about yourself like you're going to have to live with all of those decisions so honestly I 
I make the, I kind of work on that focus of, I have to be happy with myself at the end of the day, which is why I negotiate differently. I put all of my cards on the table at the first jump and I say, hey, this is it. I'm not going to try and backstab you. I'm not going to try and organize around you. This is what I'm dealing with. I expect you to make a sensible a sensible offer or a sensible negotiation based on this information. I'm Because I know that, I mean, I think what happened was when I was younger, I recognize that a presidential term or like um, a prime minister term, it's four to five years. It's, it's such a short period of time, but you're known by that period of time for so long. And then when I looked at my life, I was like, well, this job or whatever it is I'm doing, it's not my entire life. I'm going to have to live after this is done. And if I do things that make the rest of my life afterwards even if I'm an entrepreneur until I'm 50 or 70 or whatever there is a rest of my life afterwards and I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of all the decisions I made and the way I treated people so I try to take every day as like okay no matter how hard this is it's me I'm a human being and I'm going to live through this no matter what it turns out to be so who I am is so much more important than whether or not we get the deal or whether or not we get um, a, um, like a little bit less of a um, like a discount or a little bit less of a, a good like negotiation, whatever. I want to know that I can wake up the next day and be like, no matter what that person did, I did the best that I could possibly do in that situation. Thank you. Some wonderfully human perspective at a very strange time in, in the world. So thank you. Um, a huge thank you to all of my guests today. Thank you for your time, your wisdom, your insights. Um, if you'd like to learn more about what Bio, Sana and Alice do, please check out their websites and links in the notes that will come with the podcast. As I mentioned in the introduction, please do take a moment to review us. We genuinely appreciate it and it does make a difference. And if you'd like to subscribe, please go to www.principlesandleadership.com. If you'd like to propose a topic or a guest for the new PNL, please fill in the contact form on the website. Finally, I'm Kelly Buers, guest host of the new PNL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day. <laughs>